You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to the first episode of our newest podcast for the Fleming Foundation, which is Surely You Must Be Joking, Dr. Fleming. This is episode one. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Fleming. It's good to be here. The, the brief explanation for the show title goes back to uh, one of my visits to the Rockford Institute when, when Dr. Fleming was there, and it was a reception before or after a talk, and I overheard Dr. Fleming discussing an issue, and he said words to the effect of, slavery is not a moral issue. And I remember being a, a, young, uh, a young person at the time being bowled over by such a politically incorrect statement and wanting to know more, not simply dismissing it. And that's what this series hopefully does is take some of the, the more challenging statements of Dr. Fleming, which he, which he has developed over, over years of study and, and reflection, and, and to explain them in, in a more measured way. So that's where we're going to start today, Dr. Fleming. Is slavery not a moral issue? There's, there's obviously a lot uh, written in defense of the South, but, but critics of the Southern tradition have, have said that Southern society was based on slavery and is thus fundamentally immoral. What would you say the Southern response traditionally has been to that? Well, since the, uh, you know, since the, since the 20th century or the end of the 19th century, uh, the response has been a little more nuanced than it was, say, in the 1850s, when people openly celebrated uh, the virtues, real or imagined, of a slave-based society. I mean, <clears throat> there were lots of defenses in those days, but we're, we're not going into that either. Um, in more in 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 recent years, what you tend to hear from uh, Southern apologists is the idea that, well, we all know slavery is an evil. But uh, so is the kind of industrial system of the North that's also capable of evil. And, and what it really comes down to is how badly were slaves treated in comparison with other forms of you know, employed laborers. And um, Southerners were Christian and they took care of their people whom they regarded as a, they, they called them our people. They almost never used the word slave in letters and uh, diaries and things. And the, as a result, uh, you know, we, we admit that it's fundamentally evil, but that it was, uh, 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 this evil was sort of uh, am- ameliorated, washed out, etiolated by all the virtues of the Southern people. And, and so what you get is, uh, it's sort of like, uh, oh, I don't know, a mercy killing. <clears throat> it's wrong to kill people. But there are circumstances where maybe it's understandable. It's like the difference in law between a justifiable action, like a justifiable homicide, and an excusable homicide. Slavery is not justifiable. That is, it can't be made uh, truly legitimate. But it is is excusable. I think the problem with this is that... um, you, you end up, first of all, 
comparing comparing slavery with some ideal society in which everyone is free morally, spiritually, economically, and politically. There is no such society. Human, hu, hu, human beings are born in subjugation. They live in subjugation. And there are very few people ever... Um, ever uh, achieve the kind of freedom which, say, libertarians or classical liberals would talk about as the, the, the proper way or the normal way for, uh, uh, for people to live. So the Southern response has to be, these days, in, at least in public, rhetorical, nuanced, and uh, limited I think uh, there's a problem with this, obviously, because it concedes uh, much too much and is, is it seems to me, uh, a naive answer that, uh, to, in other words, to judge one set of historical institutions, say slavery and peonage or, or how, whatever else we want to throw in, by one set of criteria – but judge industrial wage, wage slavery and other forms of, uh, of uh, economic exploitation to judge that by another set of criteria. I think this, is, this isn't moral reasoning. This is uh, largely propaganda or what, what would be called in religious circles uh, can't. But can, we, can I pause you for a moment there, Dr. Fleming, because I think yeah. it would be helpful – to talk about the difference between slavery in the South and the, the conditions of the Northern industrial worker, because that's a like for like comparison. If people want to look at what was going on in 1860 in the North versus what was going on in 1860 in the South. One of the things that I didn't know because I was, I was taught by brainwashed Yankee zealots was the conditions of what was going on in the South. The fact the South had more integrated cities, the South had a healthier understanding of the, the differences between the races, and there, there wasn't any sort of odd religious weirdness that you have in the North about what was going on. That could, if I if I had a choice, and I said I'm going to be a slave in the South, or I'm going to be an industrial worker in the North, what would that choice have looked like? Well, if you look in pure economic terms, as uh, uh, Marxist historians like Fogel and Engerman or Eugene Genovese had looked, uh, if the Southern slave it, by and large, and on average, had had a much better time of it. That is, he had, if you look at uh, square footage of his living quarters, if you looked at his diet, if you looked at the number of hours of work, if you looked at provision for his health and welfare and care of him in, and his family in old age, it was a patriarchal society. That is the Southern Plantation Society. There were there were some exceptions. There were terrible planters, and the sugar plantations were particularly tough. But in general, in general, if you look across the board, the the circumstances were much better than for an industrial worker or a or a worker in the mines in either New England in a place like Connecticut or in Old England. You know, when uh, we recently had a little meeting in Pro, in uh, Charleston about Walter Scott. And Scott, when he made a, a foray through the industrial parts of northern England, and he contemplated the conditions of the miners and factory workers in the early 19th century, he, uh, he was horrified, and he said that God is even 
now requiting and will further requite uh, the, 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 the sins of the men who have done this, that is, of the great, of the great industrial capitalists who are so celebrated by American conservatives. So if, it's just, if we're just talking about material circumstances, and uh, then the advantage is all with the South. Now, of course, immediately when I've had this debate, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not trying in this little conversation, Stephen, my intent is not to defend Southern slavery or any specific form of slavery, but simply to say we, we've, we've got to have uh, some kind of sense of equity when we look at historical experiences and we can't judge things without, we can't judge others without first judging ourselves. And I'm afraid my, uh, a rational person's judgment on the life of the uh, American working class today or a hundred years ago would, would have to be extremely negative. So, but the inevitable answer is, oh yes, well, but see, the, the northern industrial laborer was, was free to quit. He could sing that famous uh, song uh, by Johnny Paycheck, you could take this job and shove it. I ain't working anymore. The trouble is that when, to quote another famous song, you owe your soul to the company store, when you have been, when you have been given provisions in advance on your salary and you are in debt to the mine or the factory, you, you, you are not legally... Uh, able to seek work elsewhere. And by the way, if you seek work elsewhere, it's going to be just as bad. The, in the South, the, your grandmother on a, on, a, on a plantation did virtually nothing. The old folks <coughs> were given a decent provision for their retirement. They would do little, you know, little hand chores and things or dust the furniture. And uh, whereas in the northern mines and and, uh, and British mines and factories, small children, married women, mothers of, of several children, were working in these factories seven days a week for 10 or 12, 14 hours a day. Some of them literally never saw the sunshine. It goes without saying that children put into a mine at that age, uh, breathing the noxious vapors, uh, <coughs> they don't live long enough to develop black lung disease. They, they, they died off at a, at a very high rate. It's, it's one of the great historical scandals that uh, the so-called progress, economic progress of the late 18th and the 19th century in uh, Britain and the northern states of the United States, progress was at the expense of what had been a fairly comfortable agricultural class who were thrown off their small holdings and farms through a system of enclosure and in Scotland through the Highland Clearances, and then had no recourse uh, except to, to work for somebody else in a condition that uh, no slave virtually had to endure. And this was part of the Southern propaganda in the 1840s and 50s. Writers like uh, George Fitzhugh uh, made detailed comparisons of the condition of the two classes. Again, moral questions uh, uh, cannot really be solved by uh, addressing material circumstances because there are some some circumstances under which uh, your favorite television and television history, the prisoner, it doesn't matter how comfortable he is, how materially well off he is, 
because he uh, insists that he's a free man and he insists on having his freedom. And I, I, I agree with that analysis completely. So that although the material circumstances, the material comparison of slavery of the slave with the industrial laborer or the miner is impo- it's important to get this straight in our head, but that it won't it won't really address the fundamental moral question, which will inevitably be raised by somebody on the other side who'll say, "Yeah, but you know, still, it's not right for one person to own another." So, well, I was going to say, if you're talking about uh, these institutions, marriage, uh, buying and selling, uh, the exploitation of, of, of others. Are, are you saying because it's a, it's a long-standing institution that we, we, we can't look at it through a moral lens? Well, I'm saying, first of all, when we, if we're going to look at it through a moral lens, we have to look at, <clears throat> at everything, including our own lives. I mean, when people say they're free, you know, for example, when Milton Friedman, a very fine economist, but a very poor political and moral thinker, he, uh, and I once got a letter from, from uh, Milton, again, explaining to me as a schoolmaster to a child that what really mattered was uh, the being free to choose. And, and I have many friends who make the same argument, who are either libertarian or classical liberal, and I always say, choose what? Well, no, but the whole point is you're free to choose. I said, well, uh, free to choose to be Jack the Ripper? Is that all right? Well, no, you, 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 you're, you're not free to choose to commit aggression against others. And then I say, why not? And they say, because of the non-aggression principle. And I say, never heard of it. Don't, don't, don't abide by it. So, free, obviously, the point is to human life is to live a life, as the Stoics would have said, in accordance with nature. And from a Christian understanding, that nature is given to us by the Creator. We li- so, for example, it's not just, I'm free to marry Jane or Steve. No, because marriage is created for the procreation of the human race and the satisfaction of our need to love something other than ourselves or something just like ourselves. So these, these, it's not up to us to make these choices. So in, this, in the same way, when we look at institutions like marriage or slavery or private property or social hierarchy, these are part of the, our created being. I'm not saying that slavery is natural. What I am saying is that we have to look at an entire society and decide, does it fulfill the needs of the human race uh, both in a material sense, in a social sense, and uh, a political sense, and ultimately a spiritual sense. And a society which degrades its members, as our society certainly does, perhaps more than any society known uh, to recorded history, it just seems to me it, it is preposterous for us to pick out either the, the, the ancient Greeks or Chinese or, or the, uh, uh, the ancient Jews or the Romans or Southerners of the 19th century for practicing a form of labor exploitation, which has uh, had some advantages, some disadvantages, but certainly did not degrade the slaves in a way that, for example, modern uh, uh, pop culture and the welfare state uh, degrade the great-grandchildren of those slaves. 
But some would argue, Dr. Fleming, isn't it wrong for one man to force another to do what he, he wants or what he doesn't want to do? Yeah, well, you're getting to a, that, that, that's a, that's a, that, this is a, a serious moral question. But to, to, to answer it, you obviously have to take up some of the exceptions. For example, um, there's a war on. Uh, let's 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 go back to a time when Americans were patriotic and volunteered for war. Let's say it's the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and I volunteered to serve in the war. And the captain says, uh, "Private Fleming, uh, go, you know, join this troop and attack the enemy." Well, I don't feel like that today. I'm, you know, I'm I drank too much last night. You you can't tell me what to do. I'm an American. Well, actually, he can tell me what to do. Children are told what to do constantly by those who are in a position uh, to know what is better for them. Their parents, their teachers, their pastor, uh, even uh, older friends. So it's certainly not a universal rule uh, that we can tell, uh, that we can't ever tell somebody else what to do or be in a position where he, we can compel him to do our bidding. Well, if we, if, we go, if we go past that tradition and we come a little closer to our modern times and we think about people like Descartes or Locke or, or, or Hobbes, what, how, how, can we, how can we understand this question through their lens? Well, again, this is uh, we get we get back to uh, say Milton Friedman or uh, or the mem- any of the representatives of the liberal tradition, which really begins a bit before Descartes and continues into our own time. Whether it's in the libertarian form or the Marxist form, where all that exists is the is the free individual and his relationship to the state, to the government. Uh, but I don't see any reason why we, either as uh, materialist pagans or especially we as Christians, should prefer that or that uh, philosophical tradition or privilege that philosophical tradition over the tradition of Plato and Aristotle and Cicero and Thomas Aquinas, or for that matter, the tradition of the Christian scriptures. Because, you know, for the Christian, the first... Uh, the first sources he has to consult for moral truth will be uh, not Descartes or John Locke or Adam Smith, but he'll be looking at the Gospels and the Epistles. There is nothing in the four Gospels to suggest that the institution of slavery is immoral. Not only that, there is in the in the Epistles of Paul and Peter, there is explicit acknowledgement of slavery as illicit institution and in the same paragraphs in which wives are told to obey their their husbands and children to obey their fathers, slaves are told to obey their masters. And a runaway slave is instructed to return to his master. Of course, slaves, the master has an obligation to give the slave proper treatment. Now, when I made this argument with uh, and engaged in this conversation with uh, some fundamentalists, they'll say, oh, but, you know, uh, 
Jewish slavery was different. It was really indentured servitude for a limited period of years, and people were liberated. Yeah, well, see, even in the Old Testament, that's only true if it's a Jewish slave owned by a Jewish master. This is, by and large, has nothing to do with the laws on Greek and Roman slavery, which were being observed in the Roman Empire, uh, and which would have been in force in Judea at the time of, uh, not only of Christ, but of, uh, of his apostles. And so it's simply <clears throat> a canard to try to bring up some of these restrictions on slavery that we find in the Old Testament, which relates very specifically to Jews owning Jews, mostly uh, under circumstances of debt. So I think it's, it's, it's worse than a canard, Doctor Fleming. I mean, it's yeah. the scriptures never like that. You know, our Lord, our Lord doesn't say render to Caesar what is Caesar's, as long as it's covered by this specific funding. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's you know, there's nothing in scripture that applies to some particular time and place only under this adjective, right? He doesn't say Jewish slaves obey your your Gentile masters or anything like that. So I think specious would be would be the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, that's there. There, there is a strange school of uh, evangelical thought that uh, says that. Well, that was under the old dispensation. So none of those funny rules that we find in the New Testament necessarily apply to our own time because we're living under a different dispensation. Hmm. It's amazing what people who regard themselves as fundamentalists and and people who uh, believe in sola scriptura how they can then invent a kind of science fiction version of the uh, of the New Testament and which exempts them from obeying any of its rules and, and down to even dr uh, drink this in remembrance of me even even a specific commandment <laughs> telling them to drink wine uh, they, they they are exempt themselves from because they have a theory hmm so, as you say, Christians look at scripture, let's say moderns may look to someone like Locke or, or Descartes, etc. And someone might say, all right, Dr. Fleming, I, I don't know about, let's say I'm not a Christian, I don't come from that tradition, I don't really know too much about Hobbes and Locke, but I'm going to tell you, common sense, slavery is wrong. Yeah. Well, common sense certainly as defined by a very peculiar philosophical tradition, most of whose precepts are fundamentally uh, – can be shown to be untrue. Like, for example, a man once lived free in a state of nature, and then they got – men got together tired of abusing each other and drew up a social contract. Well, show me any society where this has ever happened, first of all, or show me any anthropological evidence of anything like this or any probability based on our knowledge of humanity. Well, it's, uh, you know, Rousseau's famous uh, man was born free, but everywhere we see him in chains. Well, that's ridiculous. Man is born in chains. He's born a helpless baby nursing at his mother's breast. And if he's lucky... He might become economically independent in our society by the age of about 25, morally independent maybe by the time he's 40. But <clears throat> most of us, most Americans are slaves to a manufactured public opinion and the government and to vast economic forces which they have no control over or even understanding of until the day they die. 
We live in subjugation to the government just on a material level from from preschool to the retirement village that that we go to take refuge in because our because our own children will uh, will will not take us in. So so yes, that from that common sense, sure. From what they used to call the census communis, which is meaning the opinion, the understanding that is shared by people of different cultures and different backgrounds in the world. Uh, gee, there it's not so clear since all all great civilizations have had slavery, and if they don't use the word slave, they'll 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 use some word like serf or peon. Uh, famously, you know, Heller Belloc wrote this brilliant book. Um, the uh, book on the, re- the re- basically the abolition of slavery and, and, and its return in the modern age. And um, uh, his argument was that Christianity had eliminated slavery. Uh, unfortunately, this is just historically untrue. Slavery continued to exist after Constantine uh, legalized the church and gave it privileges. It continued to exist throughout antiquity. Slaves continued to be taken and captured and marketed throughout the Middle Ages, and, uh, as, and it existed side by side with serfdom and with other forms of, uh, of like debt slavery and peonage of, of various varieties. The exploitation of human labor is a, by the strong is, a, is an ugly fact of human existence. It, the only, it doesn't exist, perhaps, in societies that are so small scale that there's no labor to exploit, you know, a tribe of 30 or 40 people who are all family members or a a Highland uh, Scottish clan. But with those few exceptions, some people people are masters and others are their servants. This is as true today as it ever was. And the fact that we can't recognize it when some poor slob has to get up every day at six o'clock in the morning to get to to his forty-hour-a-week job, and uh, for which he has to pay twenty-five percent of his income to government, and and we we think he's free, but he, he's not economically free, he's not politically free, he's not morally free. So the, it's that's why I go back to something I said at the beginning, which is the the the, the moral arguments against slavery are are, are pure propaganda, and they're a propaganda designed to shield us from the reality of our own servitude, and that's where it becomes really evil. It's not all that important to defend the Old South or to defend ancient Rome or the or the Greeks or the Jews, or the Chinese or the Indians. What is important is to, for us to understand that we have a society based on servility. By the way, the Belloc book is obviously the servile state. We have a society based on servility as much or perhaps more than any civilized society in the history of the world. But we refuse to see it. In the late 1850s, Senator James Henry Hammond of uh, South Carolina was on the floor of the Senate and giving some defense of his native state when a northern senator said, uh, but sir, we in the progressive enlightened north, we have eliminated slavery. We have abolished it. And uh, Hammond's immediate answer was, the name, sir, but not the thing. And what was true of the North in the 1850s, that is, that they had abolished the name slavery, but not not the institution itself, not not the reality of it, 
is, is as true today as it was then. Well, and obviously I, I'm sympathetic to the Southern point of view, but it, again, for very politically incorrect reasons, Dr. Fleming, I, I see a value in a paternalistic um, outlook. I, I see the value in taking care of people who might not otherwise be able to take care of themselves and, and by giving them, giving them a structure in which to do this. Uh, how, however the circumstances may be that they got there. And there's no way to say this out loud in society today. No, it's true, because, you see, we've invented the fiction of the individual, the liberated, free individual. It's sort of like an uncharged uh, particle, subatomic particle. And that this is the only real moral actor in our society, this disconnected individual. Unfortunately, this disconnected individual doesn't exist, never has, never will. It's inconsistent with human nature. As David Hume said famously, uh, man born uh, of a, uh, in a family is compelled to maintain society. It's as simple as that. We, we are born within a family, genetically connected and connected by, by love and care and, and filial obedience as well as parental love. We're, we're, we, we're born connected like that. And, and our connections don't uh, cease as we get older. They increase. We ourselves get married, have children. We have a job. We have colleagues. We have employers. We have employees. We have uh, workmates, friends. Uh, neighbors, all of the fellow countrymen, all of these, it's a, it's a network of relationships in which we are bound to obey certain rules and undertake certain obligations. That is the old model. It's the model of the Greeks and Romans. It's the model of the New Testament. It's the, and it is the model of decent society, which is based on love and friendship rather than rational individualism. Rational individualism leads to the gulag. It leads or it leads to Hollywood. It leads to the Wall Street Journal. It leads to the complete degradation of, of human beings whom we care nothing for. You know, in the famous uh, scene in the, in the Old Testament where Cain cries out, am I my brother's keeper? The libertarians like to quote this. They say, well, no, obviously not. And besides which, uh, so-and-so is not my brother. But, you know, really, uh, it, is, it is a terrifying question if you meditate on it just a little bit. Because Cain is repudiating that friendship which is supposed to exist between brother and brother. It is his obligation to take care of his brother. Not everybody on the face of the earth that's, that's, that's the Marxist flip side of radical individualism that, the, that, that liberal capitalism produces. No, but we, do our, we are our brother's keeper, our children's keeper, our wives' keeper. And this is, a, this is the basis of society, subordination, obedience, but based on, on care, friendship, and affection. Slavery has that great advantage. Obviously, no no man in his right mind wants to be a slave, and and I would say no 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 one of a philosophical mind wants to be a master. But if we're uh, if we're going to exploit someone's labor, at least let us care something for that person. This is what George Fitzhugh said. He said to uh, to love your neighbor as yourself, you must have property in your neighbor. 
In other words, it is easier to behave as a Christian toward a slave than toward an employee. And I think that's largely true. And it's true until recently in Japan, where when you went to work for a company, you were basically making a kind of uh, lifetime commitment to work for that company, not not to try to better your position by going elsewhere. And meanwhile, the company, even in hard times, was committed to taking care of you. Maybe instead of firing off 10% of their workforce, they, they cut back 10% uh, on uh, the work hours. Because the corporation is not just a set of profit-seeking individualists. The corporation is more like a feudal family or a, a, a feudal enterprise ba- based on, on loyalty and affection. And the, the uh, after all the worst things that could be said about slavery, at least it does not reduce our fellow man to an abstraction. Well, and I think you're hitting on a key issue here, Dr. Fleming, which is when 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 the modern secular hears slaves obey your masters, there is a fundamental problem with obedience. The idea yes. that I'm going to do something that someone else tells me, how dare you? Right. This this hatred yeah. of hierarchy and order and obedience is, I think, part of this wholesale um, uh, out, uh, wholesale uh, throwing out of slavery and say, well, uh, no man should tell me what to do while ignoring the fact that he's got to show up at work or he's going to get fired. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and by encouraging the the idea that uh, no one can tell me what to do, it's not just no man, but no one. Not even the creative creator of the universe, in, in in the modern in the modern understanding, if there were a creator of the universe, if there were a god, he still wouldn't be able to tell me what to do. And of course, one of the great arguments in favor of atheism is that it re- it removes the the ultimate source of all authority over my feeble little individualistic will. So if there's no god. There's no father, there's no mother, there's no king, no ruler, no magistrate, and uh, no, no master. The, you know, when, uh, when the crazed King James I of England went, was approached by a group of, uh, of uh, Puritans as, arguing against uh, having bishops in the Church of England, he, uh, he, he just raged at them and said, no bishop, no king, no bishop, no king. And... Um, as incoherent as the king could be and was being at the time, and as undiplomatic as he was, there's a fundamental truth there, that all that re- forms of authority are interrelated, and you cannot destroy the author- the, 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 a political or ec- economic authority without undermining paternal authority and religious authority and uh, ultimately the spiritual authority of the church. There's a lot more we could go into, Dr. Fleming, but I feel like that would be another episode. The, the last yes. thing that I want to talk about today is the difference between <laughs> classical slavery, Jewish or otherwise, and, and modern-day wage slavery. How would you, how would you approach that? Well, <clears throat> classical slavery, including the slavery practiced by Jews in the time of uh, our Lord and his disciples, and uh, sl- slavery of the Greeks, it was... you. The slave was considered uh, a member of the household, an inferior member of the household, but more like an impoverished relative than like uh, a somebody, an anonymous person working in the factory. 
where slavery was bad in the ancient world and bad in the Old South, uh, it was because it was tending toward anonymity. You had so many slaves who didn't know their names, for example. Or the, the uh, Roman government, after a series of wars, had a huge number of slaves working in mines and, uh, and large estates, both the Roman government and large Roman landowners in Sicily. And the conditions were appalling, and it, and it uh, inspired uh, servile uprisings, slave rebellions. And this is, uh, they'll always have slave rebellions, I think, when, uh, such as the recent election of the United States, which an attempt of American slaves to assert their political freedom. <laughs> uh, whether, whether, whether they chose wisely or not is a different story, but that was clearly well, the impulse for many people. Uh, the, so the, the, the big difference is the personal relationship in a, of a typical Greek master with a typical Greek slave, or, and which was similar among, among the Jews and, and, and certainly was the marked feature of southern slavery. The worst slavery is where you're owned by the gov government. And certainly, I know that for, for many years now, the various levels of government have owned about 40 percent of my slave of my labor. We, we, we think you're, you're actually supposed to pay work and pay taxes, pay 35, 40, 40, 50 percent of your income to a local, state, national government, and, 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 and you think you're free. In a, in a decent society, you may owe through um, various imposts and, and, and import taxes, you may end up paying about 10 percent. That's a 10 to 15 percent is reason is a reasonable maximum uh, to to uh, of your uh, of your labor to pay to the government. The tithe, as in uh, as under uh, Jewish law or under the or under uh, what what a preacher will tell you at church. But we we pay we pay vastly more than that. And if somebody else owns the value of my labor, well, then to that extent, I'm a slave to it. So we are all, most of us who are taxpaying citizens, uh, we, are, we are slaves to a government that could not care whether we live or die, except insofar as when we die, uh, we, we cease to become taxpayers. <laughs> and it is very interesting that the proudest boast of many so-called conservatives is that they're taxpayers, when it should be really, uh, I, I, we, have to, we have to pay our taxes, not just for practical reasons of staying out of jail, but because it is our duty as citizens. But it is a shameful condition that, that so much of the wealth and labor of productive people is sapped away by an, uh, a government that, that has no concern for their welfare. So in this sense, the ancient, ancient and southern slavery have, have enormous advantages over our, our current form of servitude. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about today, Dr. Fleming, that we haven't had a chance to cover in our discussion? Not a bit. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much for your time, as always. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members, who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age. <laughs>